New Zealand, it's over. It's over for New Zealand. Everything's gone. They're beautiful. Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Hi, Welcome. This is Tick Tick, Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Saturday, the 22nd of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham, Tiana Koto Katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about the general election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. There are 56 days until the election. Yeah, so Trump's at it again. They like to compare us to others, so they, they were talking about New Zealand. New Zealand! It's over. It's over for New Zealand. Everything's gone. They're beautiful. They had a massive breakout yesterday. It really is just bizarre hearing a leader who's overseen a situation where the US is getting more than 40,000 fresh cases every single day, suggesting that Auckland's single new cluster, which is generating a handful of new cases each day, is even slightly comparable. Well, presumably Trump's taking Aotearoa's name in vain because it helps his narrative that America's doing an amazing job of handling the pandemic. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it, how it sort of connects to the story we were already working on. Yeah. For today's feature story, we're taking a look at election interference by foreign powers. You know, that's been big news ever since 2016 with the brouhaha over the US presidential election. But we wondered what chance there was of New Zealand being targeted. And so we went and asked some people who think about these things and actually look at what the chances are. Professor Robert Patman and David Hood. Yeah, both these guys are at Otago University, but they come from very different angles, very different fields. David, well, he's done some really interesting stuff with Twitter analytics and finding fake accounts and things. And Robert is an expert in international relations and global security. And he had some fascinating things to say about Russia and China and the Trump administration. So that's later in the show. But first, Eugene, what's been happening? Well, Adam, Auckland has, hopefully, one more weekend at Alert Level 3. You know, those strange takeaway transactions and being restricted to short drives to the beaches and parks. The rest of the country staying at Alert Level 2 with their four S's at restaurants and cafes. Three S's. We've talked about this. Anyway, Cabinet met to discuss the alert levels yesterday and then the Prime Minister turned up at the 1pm press conference and gave what must be said was quite a long address in which she said, Taiho, stay the course. We're sticking with alert level 3 and alert level 2 until Wednesday. A decision about the resetting of the alert levels beyond that will be made on Monday. Hey, also, did you hear Jacinda Ardern's very gentle pushback at Donald Trump? She was comparing death rates in New Zealand with other countries and singled out from all the countries in the world, the US. Funny that. We also learnt yesterday that there were 11 new cases, in New Zealand that is, including two recent arrivals and nine connected to the current cluster. The bit where my ears really pricked up, though, was the revelation that genome sequencing had confirmed a link between the Auckland cluster and the case of the St Luke's mall worker. Remember, that's a case which had been classified as under investigation because they couldn't find the connection in terms of regular contact tracing. But there is one angle they're still chasing down. It may have been from a shared bus ride. Wear masks on buses. 
This being an election podcast, which used to be a coronavirus podcast, it would be extremely remiss of us not to bring you up to date on the latest COVID-19 border election policies. And there was swag of them released this week. Enough for us to kick off the flaming wheel of policy at last? Nah, let's just get it done. So National wants all returnees to have a negative test before flying home. They also want a separate border agency and compulsory contact tracing technologies for border workers. ACT? Well, they promised a multidisciplinary epidemic response centre and would let people go to alternative isolation with electronic monitoring. New Zealand First policy would see the managed isolation facilities and the quarantine facilities move from hotels to military bases. Have you managed to track down Orange Guy yet? Because, um, I don't know, I'm getting a bit impatient, to be frank. Well... Look, it's not easy, all right? He's he's a busy guy. I mean, you know, like everyone, the delay in the election must have caused him a whole bunch of trouble. He's had to pump out a bunch more ads and things. So clearly he just hasn't got around to getting my messages. Oh, so you've actually found him then? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. And of course. left him actual messages? Oh, look, no, all right? Satisfied? I can't find him. Well, plenty of other people seem to be able to. There was a tweet floating around the other day showing him on the side of a tradies van. Apparently, he's got a plumbing and gas fitting business. Well, I mean, it certainly looked like Orange Guy anyway. As Twitter user Alex O'Connor put it, turns out Orange Guy is just another millennial trying to make it in the gig economy. And in another tweet, can't wait till I get in an Uber one day and Orange Guy's behind the wheel. Hmm. Well, send me the picture of that van and I'll see if I can find him that way. And failing that, I'll give the Electoral Commission another try. Right, on with the show. As we said at the top, Eugene and I set out to answer a very simple question. What chance is there of foreign interference in the New Zealand election this year? Finding the answer took us through some really interesting twists. And we started off going down a bit of an unexpected rabbit hole. Take a look at this. I'll... I'll just share it with you. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Yep. I see it. Yep. Yep. What? What is? What is it? This. Well, I guess you say it's a it's an instruction manual for hunting Twitter sock puppets. Twitter sock puppets. You better just remind us what they are. Sock puppets. So, there are accounts on Twitter or on other social media too, actually, which are sort of fake. So they exist purely to amplify messages from another account. So here's an example. I might have an account where I post my wit and wisdom and political views on an account called, say, at Adam1234. And then, because I want people to think my views are popular, I set up some sock puppets. I don't know, perhaps at Eugene123 and at Bingham1985. And each time I tweeted something on my main account, I'd then switch over to my Sock Puppet accounts and retweet it and press like and comment favorably on my own tweets. What a fine point you make at Adam1234. That sort of thing. Right, it does seem like a terrible way to pass your time, but okay. So you said that this was an instruction manual for hunting Sock Puppets, so who would want to do that? Well, actually, this guy. David Hood. I'm an IT trainer down at Otago University. So David's not an academic. He teaches computer courses to staff and students at Otago, including data analysis tools. In other words, David's really, really good at collecting data and analysing it. And so that document I just sent you shows at a really detailed geek-to-geek level 
how he devised methods to take huge sets of Twitter data and used his data skills to figure out if an account is real or a sock puppet. And the particular set of accounts that he talks about in the document have actually already been booted off Twitter because it was a seething mass of racism and Islamophobic comments and sexism. Ugh. But anyway, so scroll down the document. Okay, I can see little dotty diagrams that look like sort of weird dark butterflies. Yeah, so one of the tricks that David Hood figured out was that he could plot all the times that different accounts were doing their tweeting and look at the activity patterns across the day and across the week. Because even the most ardent Twitter user has to sleep sometime, at which point their activity falls to zero. So if you download all their messages, you can see what time of day they're sleeping. And of course, the sleep patterns for a person's main account and for their sock puppet accounts that are propping it up are going to look much the same. So keep on scrolling. And then there's this, look, you can see that one particular Twitter account always retweets or likes this other account but the two accounts never tweet simultaneously. There's always a gap of 20 seconds or more. Mm, Okay, what does that mean? What it means is that it's actually one person who's writing a tweet, then switching quickly to their sock puppet account to amplify it and praise it. Okay, so basically we're looking at a picture of David Hood nailing a sock puppet. That really is some piece of detective work. Yeah, and it turns out that this kind of clever stuff involving activity graphs and Twitter metadata is part of the detective work that you might want to use when figuring out if someone is trying to meddle in your election. We're following some breaking news in our politics lead that... So even if you only take a passing interest in the news... ...a Russian woman with trying to interfere in the 2018 midterm election. You'll know election interference has been one of the world's biggest political stories. Sarah, what is this Russian woman alleged to have done? Well, Jake... Yeah, there have been so many allegations about foreign states or agents wanting to influence elections, sometimes openly, sometimes covertly. It's in the headlines now, but it's been going on for centuries. Back in 1796, the French ambassador to the US, Pierre Adé, openly supported the Republicans and Thomas Jefferson and attacked the Federalist nominee, John Adams. And a little more recently, we've had allegations about... The US and the Soviets in Korea in 1948. The Vatican getting involved in the 1948 Italian elections. The US interfering in the Iranian elections of 1952. The US and the Soviet Union meddling in the Chilean elections of 1964. Interference in the Togolese election by France in 2010. So that's all very interesting, but it's all history. What about now? Do you reckon there's any chance of foreign powers sniffing around the New Zealand election in 2020? Is anyone trying to put a thumb on the scale? Don't know, but someone who might is Dr. Robert Patman. Uh, Robert Patman, uh, Professor of International Relations at the University of Otago. We started by asking him for his greatest hits, if you like. What were some of the world's most famous examples of election interference? That's a tricky one. I, I think I'd have to draw more on the age of the internet, because I think the internet has facilitated electoral interference in a way that possibly hasn't been so easily possible in the past. That's not to say electoral interference didn't occur. Yeah, and he had some nice examples of past election shenanigans. Apparently in the 1960 US presidential election, it turned out... A lot of people that allegedly voted in Chicago had been dead a long time. Wow, that's JFK, John F. Kennedy, who won that election. But we're getting a bit off track. You asked me what the greatest hits were. I think, personally, 
both the 2016 US presidential election and also the EU referendum in the UK. Yeah, Trump and Brexit, hard to go past those bangers. So just in case you've missed the FBI investigations and the report by special counsel Robert Mueller, who investigated the whole thing and basically any edition of the New York Times or Washington Post since 2016, the presidential election in which Donald Trump triumphed was deeply problematic with allegations that the Russians attempted to influence the outcome. Well, actually, it's much more than allegations. We know, thanks to the Mueller report, that the Russians were extensively involved in trying to help Mr Trump during the campaign against Hillary Clinton. What's less widely known is the extent to which the EU referendum in the UK was a victim of skullduggery too. So that was the vote in 2016 which gave Britons the choice, leave the EU or stay. And the outcome has led to the cluster called Brexit. Since that vote, Evidence has come to light of electoral fraud, of massive mystery donations, of data crimes. And in addition, there was Russian interference. In many respects, the Russians used the EU referendum as a template for the election campaign in the United States four months later in November 2016. Just park the EU stuff to the side for now, but don't forget it. We'll come back to it in the context of New Zealand 2020. Anyway, it was against the background of all this that David Hood, remember him? David Hood, IT trainer down at Otago yeah, University. He got wondering. I thought someone should at least be checking this in New Zealand. So I began tracking what was going on in New Zealand politics around late 2016 through to after the election. And he did find some interesting stuff, heaps of interesting stuff. Like, for instance... In the fringe New Zealand right-wing kind of Twitter space, there are a couple of Russian white supremacist accounts. Crikey. David Hood says that some of those online racists actually say up front that they're in Russia and are Russians, but some of them are a little bit more oblique. David has used those Twitter data mining techniques that we were talking about at the top to figure out where the people behind some of those mystery accounts might be. For instance, the fact that they are on Moscow time, they are taking their holidays in Moscow holidays and, and that kind of thing. And there's this one particularly clever thing he was able to use to figure out if an account which said it was in New Zealand really was in New Zealand. And it's all to do with what happens every September. The daylight savings change. New Zealand's change in September is unique in the world in terms of the, the hour that we shift at. So if you get someone claiming, I am in New Zealand, and they don't shift in September daylight savings compared to universal time, you go, are you? Are you really? So... Fake accounts, people falsely claiming to be in New Zealand when they're not, that's a gotcha, right? Not so fast. David points out that the number of Twitter accounts like that is really small. He describes it as a handful. Yeah, and at the end of his research, back then, around New Zealand's 2017 election, he eventually concluded... There was no real foreign influence in 2017. No, no one was particularly interested in, in New Zealand. So, 2017, New Zealand election, David Hood concludes no apparent foreign interference, at least where he was looking. But what about now? 
in 2020. Tick, tick. Stuff. 2020. Election. Podcast. A lot can change in three years. A lot has changed in three years. And that's not even counting the, you know, global pandemic. To take the temperature now, let's go back to Dr. Patman. Weeks out from the 2020 election in New Zealand, how does he rate the likelihood of foreign interference here? Maybe the first question is, how likely is foreign interference anywhere in the world? Robert says, hey, Russia didn't stop after 2016, you know. They have an army of professional trolls based in St. Petersburg who are part of the government operation. They are paid. Robert says there are other countries making their own attempts to influence politics abroad. We're looking at you, China. But the Russians are particularly visible. I was reading just before we got on air that William Ivanina, who is the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Centre in the United States, has been saying that the Putin government has been systematically denigrating Joseph Biden's attempt to run for the presidency in November. And a whole series of indicators have been picked up, mainly through the social media. Joe Biden is, of course, President Trump's Democratic opponent for the 2020 US election. So that's America. What about New Zealand? Are there any states, Russia or otherwise, that would be motivated enough to want to meddle in our election, do you think? Oh, I think we're quite a tempting target, not just for Russia, but for China and possibly some elements in the Trump administration. A tempting target? That does not sound good. What should we be on guard for? I think we should be on guard against the interference or intrusion into our election of foreign actors through their involvement in the social media and their involvement with, you know, domestic actors here. I I don't think there's any need for domestic actors to get the help of overseas players to help in our election. I don't know about you, Adam, but I don't think I was expecting Robert to say that. When we asked him those questions about whether we were vulnerable, I was sort of just expecting him to chortle and say, of course not. Yeah, because, like, why would anyone be interested in interfering in our election? We're a small country at the bottom of the South Pacific. I mean, sure, our Prime Minister turns up on the front of international magazines from time to time. Plenty of people have seen Lord of the Rings and Flight of the Concords and stuff, but... We're pretty small fry, right? So you think, but then Robert Patman sets out quite a few reasons why foreign actors might be interested. We've taken, in the last few years, we've taken some quite significant decisions. And it's a long list. There's the ban on oil and gas exploration. There's the passing of the gun laws after Christchurch. There's the Christchurch call, which followed the terror attack of March 15 last year, where New Zealand led the charge, calling for heavier controls on social media extremism. Then there's the whole COVID pandemic fallout, how New Zealand has done relatively well so far by comparison with other countries. That may be seen as bad news for some extremists. They may say, well, actually, you know, um, there's a number of countries like Brazil, the United Kingdom, the United States that haven't been particularly effective in combating COVID-19. So there may be a range of reasons why actors may want to target New Zealand. Actually, when you think about some of the things on that list, New Zealand has already attracted the attention of some of the more unsavoury elements of social media worldwide. Yeah, and I think it's worth pausing for a second just to be clear about something, because it's not just foreign states who have the potential to mess around inside another country's politics and elections. The internet has made it ridiculously easy for ordinary people and for non-government organisations to also have a bit of an impact. So David Hood 
that's our Twitter analyst, noticed this when New Zealand tightened up its gun laws. Yeah, there were some threads on Twitter that were thoroughly swamped by NRA supporters. The NRA being the National Rifle Association, that's the American outfit dedicated to preserving gun ownership rights. So, yeah, they didn't take kindly to what was happening, even though it was down here. David noticed what he calls swarm behaviour. The NRA one tended to be when a particular story made the American media. It produced an NRA response in New Zealand Twitter about how, you know, liberty and um, freedom and, and those kind of keywords. A similar swarm behaviour pattern emerged when the whole Stefan Molyneux, Lauren Southern debate flared up. White nationalism, fascism, Nazism, you know, with a, with a brand update. So remember, they were the Canadian right-wing speakers who tried to come to New Zealand in 2019, but their gigs ended up being cancelled, basically because of pushback from New Zealanders who weren't keen on their far-right views. We're basically here to say peacefully, no, this is not going to be tolerated in New Zealand. So for weeks, there was this controversy playing out, a lot of it on social media, including a tweet from Phil Goff, the mayor of Auckland, where he said the two Canadians weren't welcome at Auckland Council venues. David Hood chased down all the data around that tweet from Goff. And what I did there was I kept track of everyone that was liking that tweet and I kept track of all the replies. And if you mash up together the people liking it and the people replying and who they know and that kind of thing, you can build a for and against camp. And what was interesting about that was... The for them visiting camp was massively, massively offshore. The against them visiting camp was massively, massively onshore. So what Hood concluded from that was... Well, when we see this swarm behaviour on New Zealand social media... It's much more about New Zealand being used as a football or a hypothetical example for debates taking place in other places. There was another really weird example David Hood mentioned, which I hadn't heard of. Apparently last year, a bunch of new New Zealand newspaper websites sprung up all of a sudden. And people were like, huh? I thought the North Otago Times stopped getting delivered in 1932. And of course, it had, because the new websites were for newspapers that had all ceased publication years, even decades earlier. Kind of like the newspaper equivalent of what happens in those Frederick Forsyth novels where the bad guys get passports in the names of dead people. Exactly. So there was a sudden online resurrection of the Wellington Independent, the tablet, and the North Otago Times. And weirdest of all, these new sites seem to have no interest in New Zealand affairs. Instead, they were publishing what looked like a roster of international stories and opinion pieces. Yeah, except some of the headlines were, well, I'll give you an example. And warning, it's mangled English. Trump will visit the shooting case, sadly, El Paso sent a welcome voice. What the hell? So, yeah, obviously something was going on. But what? A non-profit organisation called EU Disinfo Lab uncovered the fake newspaper sites. And they weren't just in New Zealand. There were heaps, hundreds from all around the world. And they figured out that the whole exercise had been done by a pro-Indian propaganda network. I guess the point was that it meant they could point to all these foreign media sites containing articles which just happened to support their views. And the rest of the articles were just padding to make it look legit. 
Yeah, like David Hood said, much of what goes on is more about New Zealand being used as a staging post or some sort of geopolitical football. Which again, is not to say we're off the hook, or good in the hood as it were. Remember when we spoke to Robert Patman, he said we were a tempting target. So how tempting? And what's the risk someone's going to take a pop? Put it this way, Eugene, we're one of the most connected societies in the world in terms of the internet and the ownership of mobile telephones. Yeah, I mean, as I say, going against that, we may be a target. I'm not sure, however, they would be successful if they tried it. I mean, the GCSB, I think, is fully aware that there is always the possibility of foreign actors intervening. Just quickly, the GCSB is the Government Communications Security Bureau, the electronic spy agency, basically. The question is whether we have, if you like, the civil society machinery during an election to intercept and thwart attempts to influence through the social media, attempts by foreign actors to shape the election here. I probably think we're a little bit weak on that front. We're weak in terms of being able to defend ourselves. We are in relatively new times. Mm. And I think Carol Coldwell, the journalist for The Guardian, put it very nicely not so long ago, that technology has advanced so rapidly that many of our old electoral rules, which were basically designed for a different era, have struggled to keep up. And therefore, there are opportunities for abuse. Again, Adam, I don't know that I was expecting Robert to be so forthright. Sounds to me like he's really raising the alarm here. And actually, when you look back through comments the New Zealand spy agencies have made in the past few years, they've raised the alarm too. They're on active standby. Yeah, Rebecca Kitteridge, who's head of the Security Intelligence Service, she told a parliamentary committee last year that, quote, interference in New Zealand elections by a state actor was plausible and remains so, unquote. It's warnings like that which led to changes to rules around foreign donations in New Zealand last year, preventing political parties and candidates from accepting money from overseas. So I guess that might help. And yet, as Robert Patman points out, there are foreign actors of a kind involved in the New Zealand election in 2020 right under our noses. Lots of parties seek advice from foreign actors. So it's like this is yet another category of foreign involvement in our politics elections. So for instance, there's the company Crosby Texter. A neoliberal right of centre group. Which has helped centre-right parties all over the world, including Britain, and the National Party in New Zealand for a few years now. And Robert is also talking about the Leave EU movement, the self-proclaimed bad boys of Brexit. No, seriously, that's what they call themselves. Who have gone from campaigning for Britain to leave the European Union in that fraught 2016 referendum to advising New Zealand first. So Leave EU, that was a huge, well-funded pro-Brexit lobby group, was headed by Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore. And now Banks and Wigmore are helping out Winston Peters and the New Zealand First Party during our 2020 election. And Robert Patman finds that new connection really concerning. Now, you may say, what's the problem? The problem is that they stand for a view of the world which is antithesis of what New Zealand stands for. They do not believe in a rules-based system. They are very strong supporters of the Trump administration. Banks and Wigmore, if you go to their social media, describe Black Lives Matter as the Taliban. They're extreme right. And they have been involved in electoral skullduggery. Now... It's interesting that the foreign minister of New Zealand, when our national interest critically depends on an international rules-based system, is hiring people that do not believe in that rules-based system. 
and actively attack its institutions like the UN and the WTO. The World Trade Organization has been a godsend for our trading leverage in the world. And so that's what the problem is. There seems to be a contradiction there. Whether Mr. Peters, I would have thought he did his homework about the background of these people, but maybe he didn't. I don't know. In July, Winston Peters confirmed that he was getting help from Andy Wigmore and Aaron Banks. But Peters pointed out that it wasn't unusual for New Zealand political parties to seek advice offshore. Yeah, case in point, Crosby Texter for National, and as Winston Peters put it, Labour's connections with, quote, international socialist and labour arms all around the world. In an interview in July, he told RNZ that, quote, I was talking to those two gentlemen and they said to me, we'd like to help you in any way, what can we do? And I said, if you've got any bright ideas, then let's talk about that. But that's all it is, unquote. For their part, Wigmore and Banks have promised Winston on steroids this campaign. That's given me a really disturbing image of Peters flexing his gun and showing off a six-pack. But anyway, Wigmore and Banks have been pretty blatant about their tactics in the past. Banks told a 2018 official inquiry in the UK that, quote, we were not above using alternative methods to punch home our message or lead people up the garden path if we had to, close quotes. When Winston Peters was asked in that RNZ interview if this was something that could be expected from them in the New Zealand election, he said such a question was, quote, defamatory innuendo. So, will we see foreign interference in the New Zealand election in 2020? I guess after hearing from David Hood and Robert Patman, I'm a little bit on the one hand, but on the other hand... Yeah, I certainly came away with the feeling that, you know, it's not impossible, but it might not be what we imagine it to be. Foreign influence in elections isn't all about Putin and stolen emails and WikiLeaks and those kind of things. There are other versions of it too, some of which might not even amount to much. Fake accounts run by foreign white supremacists. New Zealand newspapers which come back from the grave to talk about Pakistan. Social media swarms by American gun owners and Canadian right-wingers and shiny-shoed consultants who fly in to offer their services to mainstream political parties. Then again, at the same time, our spy agencies are saying, listen, New Zealand is not immune to possible interference by foreign state actors. As Robert Patman said, there are good reasons to think we might be of interest to China, to Russia, even to the Trump administration. The thing is, though, in the end, New Zealand's election is going to be decided by the New Zealanders who drop their paper into the ballot box or put their votes in the mail. Which kind of got us thinking about something David Hood said. My main interest is that people in New Zealand are getting the opportunity to have genuine conversations with each other. Yeah, putting foreign agents and all that aside, I guess every New Zealand voter has got a responsibility because the biggest influence in this election is us. So that's it for today. Thank you to David Hood and Robert Patman. Hey, Adam, you're not really going to set up a sock puppet account, are you? Don't know. At Bingham1985 had a nice ring to it. We'll see. That was the Tick Tick podcast for Saturday the 22nd of August. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you also to Catherine George, Jack Price, Patrick Crudson, John Hartfeld, and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms as well as on the Stuff website and you can get in touch with us via our email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, you can find a link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back next week. E